This is Bang Goes the Universe, a walking, talking, four-dimensional tour of the history, the people, and the science behind one of the greatest discoveries of all time, the Big Bang. I'm your host, Ron Baller, writer, producer, astro-enthusiast, science communicator, and author of Hubble Hummison and the Big Bang. This podcast is an attempt to demystify the science behind Big Bang cosmology by tracing the developments in modern Western thought that slowly led us to our current state of play. This time, we'll take a look at two superheroes of ancient metaphysics who took on some of the toughest metaphysical challenges of their day and came up with a solution so prescient it wouldn't gain a foothold in the conscience of the science world for over 2,000 years. This is Episode 8, Leucippus and Democritus Derive the Atom. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. Well, if you've listened in this far, then like me, you're seeing how the scientific philosophy of the early pre-Socratic era is beginning to turn the corner toward a more scientific approach during the second half of the 5th century BCE. The likes of Anaxagoras and Philolaus have taken the work of their predecessors and begun to imagine wholly different origins and outcomes for cosmic beginnings and the evolution of the universe. We're still very much in the realm of philosophy and metaphysics here. Mathematics, the proof system for theoretical physics, is definitely present in this age, but its use is still largely intended for geometric solutions, for use in architecture, and for other practical purposes. Both Leucippus and Democritus fit this description, although in the case of the latter we definitely find a scope and breadth of insights that are quite remarkable. We know very little of Leucippus' life and work. So little, in fact, that there are some who doubt his very existence. He sort of plays Socrates to Democritus' Plato, one highly regarded for his insights and passing them on to a pupil who took the theoretical ball and ran with it into history although I'm sure Leucippus would have enjoyed getting even half of the acknowledgement his counterpart in this scheme received. There's a lot of great work being done in the field of history of science, and I have definitely benefited from it on the whole. I would like, however, to point out again that while credit is deserving of those whose thoughts have been written down and preserved over time, no discovery or hypothesis is conjured in a vacuum, especially when we're dealing in antiquity. It's important to remember that in this era, philosophizing about the world was as common as scrolling through your cell phone is today. Not that everyone was displaying genius-level intellect in their inquiries and suggestions, but everyone, everyone was engaged in conversation. Because conversation was what they had. This isn't very long after the moment in history when someone said, Hey, I just wrote a book. And another person said, Congrats! What's a book? I'm being funny, but you get the point. While there were games and theater and there was music and poetry and so on, it was all a part of a highly communal experience. Most people in this age weren't living very long lives, and they were apt to spend the majority of them sitting around with friends and family, and in some cases, tutors of one sort or another, talking and learning about the world. The majority couldn't even read or write. 
it was left to a rare few with the knowledge and intellect to make the insights that helped develop the broad schools of knowledge we all take for granted today. But they were taking their cues from what they were seeing and reading and, crucially, what they were hearing. Such is the case with Leucippus and Democritus, one the tutor bestowing his own ideas on the subject of what we now refer to generally as matter, and the other blending his master's teaching with his broader learning to present an idea so prescient that it wouldn't gain a scientific foothold until the early 19th century of the Common Era. First, and maybe least, to the geographical morass surrounding birthplace, there's no consensus on either Leucippus's place of birth or the year in which he was born. Most sources indicate he was born in or around the year 480 BCE, either in Miletus, or Elea, or Abdera. At least one source even goes so far as to refer to him as Leucippus of Miletus. There is reason to believe he lived some portion of his life in Abdera, where his star pupil Democritus is known to have been born and raised. But Democritus is known to have been very well-traveled, so it's no stretch to imagine him gleefully stomping around the seaside village of Alea near the Gulf of Salerno in modern Italy, some 600 miles due west of Abdera. Whether Leucippus was born there or not is an open question. I personally tend toward Alea, since he seems to have been a student of Zeno of Alea, or at very least a student of his teaching. Zeno of Alea was a student of Parmenides, a mathematician and an absurdist who set out to prove the Parmenidean stance that perception of motion and space were merely illusions, through the development and use of a series of mathematical paradoxes. One of the best known of these is called the Achilles Paradox. If you watched Warner Brothers cartoons growing up, you probably saw a send-up of it when Bugs Bunny attempts to outrun a turtle and always ends up losing. That is indeed the premise of Zeno's famous paradox, where the fleet-footed Achilles is trying to catch up to a tortoise that has a lead on him by closing the distance between them. By the time Achilles reaches the point where the tortoise was, he finds that it has moved on. This perplexing aberration continues into infinity. It was Zeno's way of pointing to the Parmenidean idea that time and space were infinitely divisible. As we discussed in episode 4, Parmenides and his adherents believed nothing or void was impossible, since a thing must either exist or not exist. Therefore, nothing could move into or across a void, since void and motion must in turn be an illusion. If we want to split hairs, we could argue that Parmenides was correct in saying the universe doesn't consist of nothing. There is very definitely something everywhere we look. Although we haven't seen all of it and we're having a hard time even detecting some of the stuff of the universe. Even then, there are all kinds of energies that flow throughout the so-called void. This is where Leucippus jumped off the Parmenidean or Eleatic bandwagon, though. He, like many of his neighbors, simply looked around him and decided that movement appeared to be real. So it must be. So where to land on this issue? What Leucippus decided was that if, as the Eleatic school taught, thing must necessarily exist, that it was equally possible for thing not to exist. As he put it, 
the one no more exists than the other. In other words, nothing was absolutely possible, and furthermore, there must be enough space between things to allow for the movement we perceive in our natural surroundings. Incidentally, this problem didn't go away after Leucippus and Democritus entered the scene. Far from it, in fact. The likes of Sir Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein would grapple with the subject of space and time well into the future. Newton first resolved it with his absolute space approach, where space and time are both absolute and independent of one another, and relative time was that which we perceive to provide a universal background for a system of mechanics. Einstein later altered this design with his theoretical and mathematical proof that space and time were both one and relative. As for the argument that what we perceive might be an illusion, that debate is only becoming more complex in our modern digital world. But getting back to Leucippus, having refuted the Eleatic school argument that nothing could not exist, he had to figure out a solution to provide for what we don't see and its role in establishing movement in and through space. His solution? Think small. Leucippus came up with the idea that the universe must have two basic elements, the solid and the void. The solid stuff was made up of what he called atoms, and the void was empty space. These, he reasoned, must both be infinite. The word atom comes from the Greek word atomos, meaning indivisible. He decided that all things in the universe must be made up of these tiny life-building bits. I say decided because he had no experimental basis for making this claim, but Parmenides didn't either, so they were even. This seemed to solve for the Parmenidean doctrine, since these atoms were solid, unchanging, and couldn't ever disappear or become what is not. By moving about and changing position, they made up the stuff and the movement we see in the world. Not only was change possible, but it was also inevitable. In his deliberations on Leucippus and Democritus, Aristotle made no distinction between the two in terms of their contributions to this new concept, which he ultimately found aberrant and, in any event, unlikely. He did relate the idea of changeable atoms to the alphabet, in which different letters are of different shapes and, by merely changing positions, provide different thoughts and ideas, creating language. It's a nice analogy. Almost nothing else survives from Leucippus's philosophy. He is noted as having written two books, The Great World System and On Mind, but of these only a single fragment has survived. Quote, Nothing happens at random, but everything from reason and by necessity. Unquote. The word reason in this context probably refers once again to the Greek logos or divine intelligence. This idea wouldn't have been supported by his brilliant and far better recognized student, Democritus, who he apparently met and tutored for a time on the subject of this atomic theory. Since we don't have much knowledge of Leucippus's other work from those who knew of him, we can assume that the atomic theory was the primary teaching he imparted on his younger and incredibly curious and intelligent student. Democritus is thought to have been born around 460 BCE in the seaside village of Abdera in the city of Thrace, 
an Ionian colony of Teos in what is today Greece. He's thought to have lived a long life. Most accounts have him dying in or around 370 BCE, age 90. He was most likely born into wealth, possibly Thracian nobility. There are accounts of his father receiving the Persian king Xerxes on his march through the region during the Second Persian War, some 20 years before Democritus' birth. As the story goes, Xerxes bestowed a gift of a magi, or a sage, as thanks for his host's hospitality. There are reports that Democritus spent time studying with various magi on his journeys. As a consequence of his parentage, Democritus was well-schooled and showed his curiosity and intellect at an early age. He's known to have traveled extensively from Mesopotamia around the Mediterranean, including Egypt and other parts of the African continent. He picked up Egyptian and Babylonian mathematics and debated with members of the priesthood. His ethics, a major topic of his successors Socrates and Plato, appear only in disconnected platitudes. He probably rejected the notion of supernatural influences on either origins or ethics, and by extension believed that feeling good was a state of mind and not due to external forces. He was an optimist and an enlightened hedonist who valued moderation and mindfulness in indulging in life's pleasures, and advised avoiding becoming too dependent on fortune and lustful desire for one's sense of well-being and cheerfulness. His own general cheerfulness accounted for his being referred to as the laughing philosopher. He also promoted the value of teaching and the act of self-expression as part of the art of caring for the soul. Were he alive today, he would most certainly have been an advocate of free will. Perhaps more than anyone in this era of antiquity, Democritus was an eager polymath and a prolific writer of some 60 or 70 written works who made interesting and sometimes prescient insights in the fields of geometry, anthropology, epistemology, cosmogony, and cosmology. In geometry, for instance, he was one of the first to observe that a cone or pyramid has one-third the volume of a cylinder of the same height and base. On anthropology, Democritus put forth the idea that humans had arisen from the earth, were animal-like in nature, and that earlier hunter-gatherers led short, difficult lives, living off the land and driven together by the threat of predation and other hazards. There they began to use symbolism to explain the events of their lives, and later developed oral languages. As one generation learned from the last, they made improvements that led to the evolution of human communication and civilization as a whole. And he believed that humans naturally form communities. His contributions to epistemology, on knowledge and perception, extended from his atomic theory, which he adopted and refined from Leucippus. In developing the atomist theory, Democritus took further aim at Parmenides than the Eleatic school, taking cues from both Anaxagoras' theory that all life came from seed and Empedocles' eternal attractor, love. As a kind of thought experiment, he imagined splitting a rock in two, the two halves would represent essential parts of the whole. Now, if he continually split the halves into smaller and smaller pieces, eventually he would wind up with parts so small as to be invisible. Yet they would all still be part of the whole. This was at the very heart of Democritus' theory. 
and the use of the rock, whether practical or theoretical, represents the beginnings of experimentation. Seeking to better define the nature of the atom, Democritus asserted that they had a solid structure, were indestructible, indivisible, and unchanging. To keep from running into Zeno's infinite divisibility conundrum, he asserted that there was a limit to how small the atoms could be. They could be of an almost infinite number, kind, shape, and size, and possibly even weight. Crucially, they were always in motion through the space provided them. Although he was probably more responsible for the disappearance of atomism at this early stage than anyone else, Aristotle seemed to prefer Democritus' theory to Parmenides, whose universe he suggested might ultimately end up a lifeless morass of constant and infinite divisions. Having set forth his theory on the nature of atoms, Democritus next set about deriving cosmic origins. In his cosmogony, the atoms were once stirring about in every direction in a kind of vibrating state. These vibrations caused them to begin to collide. The collisions caused some of the atoms to start to whirl around one another, forming up larger bodies and worlds. There was no purpose to this creation, but instead was the result of necessity, whereby like atoms sought each other out and fitted together. Planet atoms, and star atoms, and people atoms, and puppy dog atoms, and so on. His was a mechanical system that over time created the universe. Because both solid and void were infinite, he concluded the universe must be of infinite size with an infinite number of worlds that either existed or pre-existed. In turn, all things born into existence through the accumulation of atoms experience decay and death through the loss of them. The sun, moon, and stars, the planets, and even the Milky Way were all constituents of the broader cosmos, all created through the accumulation of atoms. Less than a generation after Parmenides and Zeno laid out their absurdist views that reality and motion were but an illusion, Democritus had taken the challenge of devising a better system for understanding nature and very nearly nailed it 2,200 years before Dalton. It's almost incomprehensible that someone could have pulled this together at such an early time without the benefit of a couple thousand years of development and experimentation. Throughout history, we see few examples of this sort of hyper-prescient insight and invention. Democritus certainly belongs in that conversation. I should note that although he seems like maybe he was a visitor from the future, Democritus was still very much a creature of his day. His cosmology was a practical answer to theological constructs that explained physical phenomena such as thunder and lightning and earthquakes through supernatural purposes and agency. Democritus' system was based on an ethical foundation of an ultimate good or cheerfulness, as he put it. Quote, a state in which the soul lives peacefully and tranquilly, undisturbed by fear or superstition or any other feeling, unquote. This idea is leaning into his thoughts on knowledge and perception, both of which feature the use of atoms. To explain his premise on the effects of atoms on perception, Democritus made a comparison between physis, the Greek word for nature, and nomos, the word for convention, by which he meant perception. He wrote, By convention sweet, and by convention better, 
by convention hot, by convention cold, by convention color, but in reality, atoms and void. In Democritus' scheme, sensory perceptions like taste and color and hot and cold were not due to traits inherent in the things we see, taste, and touch, but rather due to changes in the positions of the atoms that made up the things. Appearances were due to changes in position, not form. So when the surface of the sea turned from blue to white, it was because an influx of flat, smooth atoms that cast no shadow were moved to the surface. Blackness or darkness was caused by an influx of rough and uneven atoms that cast a heavy shadow. Although this theory is pretty far from reality, Democritus is thought to be the first person to attempt an explanation for why we see in color. In order for us to see, atoms from an object must shrink down to an appropriate size and imprint themselves on the eye, creating an image of the thing we are perceiving. The brain doesn't appear to be involved, but instead the soul, or psyche, is the source of perception, the management and care of which is important for the proper perception of nature. He appears to make no attempt to explain why or how the atoms are propelled in their constant motion in the first place, except that they collide and move into different spaces in search of like atoms to latch onto. This was one of Aristotle's criticisms and may have helped to convince him that Democritus was ultimately wrong about the existence of atoms. As for the soul, Democritus believed it was composed of fire atoms, another indication of the age in which he was living. To the majority of philosophers and citizens of the ancient Greek world, fire was associated with life. Fire atoms were spherical and highly mobile, and the soul inhabited by these atoms was responsible for the function and motion of living things. By extension, Democritus would have denied the survival of the soul after death, because in death, the soul would have shed its life-giving fire atoms and become cold and lifeless. On the issue of knowledge, Democritus shared Leucippus' opinion that thought and sensation were sensory imprints on the body from the outside world that caused changes in bodily composition. This he referred to as secret knowledge, as it was gleaned through sensory perception, and as such, subject to holes in perception that could be misleading. Now he added a second form of knowledge he called legitimate knowledge that could only be gained through inductive reasoning about the things we perceive. This idea anticipated the work of René Descartes in the 17th century of the Common Era. Perhaps returning to a theme presented to him by Anaxagoras, Democritus believed that all parts of the body contribute to the seed that produces offspring. Furthermore, he believed that both parents contribute seed in this process, and the sex of the child is determined by the proportional seed it gets from each parent. Leucippus, who is thought to have created the first theory of atomism, and his pupil, Democritus, who adopted and revised it, significantly altered the conversation started by Parmenides and his followers on the nature of nature. Following the lead of Anaxagoras and Empedocles, Democritus formed insights on the role of atoms in knowledge and perception that would capture the imaginations of future Greek philosophers. Although he so disliked Democritus that he wanted to have his books burned, Plato discussed his thoughts on atoms and space in the Timaeus. 
Aristotle thought of Democritus as an important voice who challenged his opinions and ideas on nature. He wrote dozens of books on ethics, natural science, nature, mathematics, literature, medicine, diet, war tactics, agriculture, and more. The incredible breadth and depth of scope of his work and his raising plausible objections to some of the dogmatic assertions of earlier pre-Socratics made Democritus an important bridge between that group and the philosophers of the Platonic era. He was perhaps the most scientific thinking of any of the ancient Greek philosophers. Up next, we'll leap forward to the 3rd century BCE to look at the life and work of the person who first established a heliocentric model of the universe and attempted the first measurements of the distance to and the size of the sun and moon. That's coming up in Episode 9, Aristarchus Updates Anaxagoras. Thanks for joining me. Likes and subscriptions are most appreciated. We'll see you next time. That concludes this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Remember to like or subscribe to the show for updates on future episodes as they're published. We really appreciate the support. If you have questions or comments about or for current or future episodes, please leave them in the comments section or email them to me at contact at ronvaller.com. Bang Goes the Universe is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ron Voller. Thanks to Mark Voller for providing the theme music. We'll see you next time.